God, we ask that you meet us here in these moments, that you would speak to us through your word, that these words of yours would find fertile soil in our hearts that would lead us into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with you. So be with us in this time. Amen. Well, nobody knows this better than I do, but there's certainly a time and a place for laughter. Laughter is healthy, it's good for you, it's necessary. I can't even imagine thinking about what this world would be like without laughter. But the question for today that we're going to look at is this. Are there times and places where laughter is inappropriate? Right? Like, I can think of a bunch. Have you ever had a case of the giggles at the most inopportune time? Am I the only one? Good. Laughed when nobody else was laughing, when the timing is all wrong. I've laughed on the wrong occasion more times than I would like to admit. And it's hard, because once the giggles start, they're hard to stop. And so growing up, my brother and I used to laugh all the time in worship, seated with my poor mother. And it got so bad that she would separate us by trying to sit in between us so that we couldn't, like, poke and prod each other during worship when something that was, like, what we thought was amusing was going down. And so when we were starting to talk about this, Jeff actually reminded me that in many of our charismatic traditions, they actually have this practice called holy laughter, all right? Is anyone, is anybody familiar with that? Like, not very many, right? Um, and the frozen, chosen Presbyterian types, uh, this, this, nobody knows what holy laughter, but it's actually funny, right? So holy laughter is this phenomenon where a person anointed by the Holy Spirit laughs uncontrollably. I'm not kidding. Like, I can't make this stuff up. Sometimes falling on the floor and, like, flopping around, okay? Um, so I, I, have, I think I've experienced this one time when I went to my grandma's Pentecostal church when I was a kid, and I was like, Bob, what is going on? You know? Um, and so... You know, when I started to think about this, maybe when I got the giggles when I was a kid in church, I was just getting in touch with, like, my charismatic roots, you know? <laughs> or maybe I was just immature and unable to control my emotions, probably door number two. <laughs> but every Sunday, we would look for this one particular guy who shall remain nameless, because there actually are, like, a couple people in here <laughs> who would remember who this guy is, you know? <laughs> His face always red. Apparently, he was a really poor sleeper. Because every single Sunday morning, without fail, as soon as the pastor, Dr. Boss, got up to preach, this guy would fall asleep every time. I mean, like, deep sleep. Sawing logs, like dreaming about only God knows what. And so we would watch as kids. We'd wait for the eyelids to start drooping. And we'd start poking each other. Look, it's happening. We would just wait for this. For that moment when the drool would start on the corner of the mouth. And then, bam! He'd be asleep. Every time. And we, like, we couldn't get enough of this. We are out of control. Laughing this avalanche of laughter. No way to stop it. My poor, embarrassed mother elbowing us. Trying to get us to knock it off. Inside, we would talk about this, too, afterwards. She was laughing, too, trust me. But she knew how to control it, and we didn't. Well, plain and simple, it was really funny. I mean, really funny. And so the people around us every Sunday morning were clearly annoyed with us. 
You know, they never experienced holy laughter before, so they didn't know what it was. <laughs> they just thought we were these rude and disrespectful kids, which I guess we probably were. Today, we're actually going to look at a story about a woman who laughed at the wrong time. The most inappropriate of occasions. But it wasn't necessarily just the laughter per se that it was the problem, but rather what the laughter revealed about her faith. That's what we're going to take a look at today. And so we're listening to this story. We're in uh, Genesis right now. We're going to be there for the summer. And I'll tell you what, it's not boring. It is challenging. This is some, it's going to get harder as we go. Um, But it's fun. Because these are real people that have real struggles and real problems and makes me feel better about myself. So, here we go. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre and sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servants. Let a little water be brought to and wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after you may pass on, since you've come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said, and Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah, and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf tender and good, and gave it to the servant, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, There, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. (laughs) The word of the Lord. And so, here's a little uh, little map. Last week... I made the helpful diagram for Dale, so this is the helpful map, all right? <laughs> so if you can read it, which is a big if, you look there at the bottom right, you see the Ur, okay? And then you see the arrows. This is kind of Abraham's journey. So the place where he came from, ancient Mesopotamia, now like Iraq, Syria, Turkey, um, is actually home to one of the oldest civilizations ever discovered. And so it's also one of the earliest regions that was re-inhabited after the Great Flood. And so it was this area that Abraham lived before leaving for the promised land. And then we have this, you know, Dale talked a little bit about this last week, that sin and the fall of humanity meant that God's going to need to find another way to reach humanity, his rebellious creation. And so God actually chooses this 
new way, this one nation, Israel, among all the other nations to carry his light to others. And so how this played out is seen in the rest of the story of Genesis and the lives of the Israelite patriarchs. It began with Abraham, the founder, and then it moved on through his family tree until we get to the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And so the question right up front should be something like, how would this nation, how would Israel be different from the other nations? How would they be different? How would they be able to resist imitating the unjust and unholy ways of all the surrounding people? How would they pass on God's ways from generation to generation? And so God chose to do this through the right ordering of family, through solid marriages. And so the key to God's new way is going to be faithfulness, faithfulness to children, to spouses, most of all to God. And so it's critical. God actually chooses the family unit as the primary way of passing on his ways to the next generation. It still holds true for us today. I spent years, decades as a youth pastor. Parents used to bring their kids to me and they'd say, fix my kid. And I'd say, I can't. There's only one who can't. Um, and it's not, his name is not Rob. Anyway, I digress. God begins this chapter, this new chapter, by forming what we call the covenant with Abraham. Father Abraham is this childless, rootless, pretty much homeless, and probably godless shepherd. An interesting note that Abraham has stayed faithfully married to his wife, who's this beautiful but barren woman, for decades before God calls him at age 75. God calls Abraham, he tells him to leave every single thing in his life that's familiar, his land, his family, his house, and to go to this strange land that God would show him. It's a long ways away. And so, not only um, is Abraham this pretty manly guy, he's fit to uh, be the guy, he's got the right stuff for the founding of a nation, this is what God thinks, but Genesis sets up this problem beautifully. There's a major problem that Abraham was, however fit to rule he was. The founding of this chosen nation is completely dependent on strong and capable and smart women. Not only for their generative power, also for their guidance in raising the next generation, but also guiding their childish and oftentimes incapable husbands. <laughs> Has anything changed? <laughs> Sarah holds the key, right? She holds the key to the nation's future. But in her old age, the problem is she has no children. How will this nation be formed? How will it bless the world, which was God's promise to Abraham? If Abraham's line ceases to exist, is God a liar? Is God a promise breaker? These are the kinds of questions we should be asking. And so Abraham is probably taking a little nap at the entrance of his desert tent when these three visitors arrive, three total strangers, one of whom is the Lord himself. And so Abraham recognizes this immediately. He says, he bows down to the ground. He invites the Lord and the others to stay with him. And so they show, this is perfect for Old Testament, right? They show perfect hospitality to these total strangers. This was crucially important to them. 
And so they set them in the shade of a tree. They offer them water and food and even, this is incredible, even the best drink available to them of the day, goat's milk, right? It predates the invention of whiskey by about 3,500 years. <laughs> so goat's milk will have to do, all right? That's another digression, but sometimes I can't help myself. <laughs> so the tension here is good. And what the story is doing is it's putting the promises of God on one hand, and it's putting the response of Abraham and Sarah on the other. And it's holding these two things in tension. And so Sarah is desperate for children. She's so desperate, in fact, that she's already tried one plan that was pretty common in the ancient Near East, that Abraham would have uh, father a child through a surrogate. And we, some of us know this story, an Egyptian servant woman named Hagar, and the son is Ishmael. And God doesn't stand in the way of this, but nor does God approve of this plan. The plan, of course, backfires. How could it not? The whole part of the story shows that Abraham and Sarah did not fully understand what God's intention and meaning of marriage really was. They didn't get it. And so now they get another chance to try to get it right. At 99 years old, God tells Abraham that he's going to father a son, age 89. The fact is that God had already made this promise to Abraham. In chapter 17 of Genesis, God promised these three things. He said that he would bless Sarah, that she would bear a son with Abraham, and that nations and kings would come from her. This is the promise that Abraham has already received. And when God made this promise to Abraham, how did he respond? Anybody? How do you think he responded? He fell down on his face and he laughed. No joke. He literally fell on his face and he laughed at this promise. What a joke, Abraham. This must have been what he's thinking. This is ridiculous. Now, God is a lot of things. Compassionate, faithful, patient, Loving to no end, but I don't know about you, jokester does not make my top ten list. <laughs> I really just don't see God telling jokes like this one that I'm going to try. I want you to be so full of Christ that if a mosquito bites you, it flies away singing, there is power in blood. <laughs> no one can picture God. That's horrible. God doesn't tell jokes like that. God may have a sense of humor, and I think God does, but not exactly full of jokes. So it's not supposed to be funny. Abraham laughs at the worst possible time, the worst possible moment. He laughs right in God's face. That can't be good. But God insisted that there was something that was important about these right family relationships. God insisted that Abraham's son must come from the right woman, the one that he was married to. And so together, Abraham and Sarah, as a married couple, were supposed to birth this nation together. And so Sarah gets her turn. She's listening to this conversation between the strangers and Abraham and overhears one of the visitors say that she's going to have a son probably sometime about in the next year or so. What was Sarah's response when she overhears this? It's the same thing. She laughs. Just like Abraham had done. She thought the Lord couldn't hear. Wrong. God hears this laugh of disbelief coming from inside the tent. And so God asked Abraham, why was it that Sarah laughed? 
And Abraham said, I don't know, go ask her. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he then asked the question, which is the key to the whole thing. God asked this question. He says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? This is the most important part of the text. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything beyond the Lord's capability? Is there anything that God cannot do? Anything that's just impossible for God? And the reason that God responds with the question is because the gospel always requires a decision. God cannot make the decision for them. Either they're going to trust and believe in God's promises or they uh, about having this child, or they're going to think that having a child in old age is simply impossible, even for God. And so they both laugh. They both get it wrong. This is one of the reasons I love the book of Genesis. Abraham, who's this guy who's always lifted up as the example for faith, is here unfaithful. We find him unfaithful to his wife and to God. And here, they're not offered as models of the faith. They're actually offered as models of disbelief. They failed to trust in the promise. They didn't believe. It makes me feel a little bit better about the times when I've laughed in God's face. Times when I didn't trust in the promises. Times when I lacked in faith. When I first thought about the idea and started to sense God's call to plant this church, I'll tell you what, I laughed more than one. I cried too, but I also laughed. I thought, God's got the wrong guy, right? This, that's a ridiculous thing. To me, that was as ridiculous as Abraham and Sarah having a son, all right? And so I, I understand where they were, you know? And so their laugh says a lot of things. It says that some things are beyond God's ability. That's what their laugh says. Their laugh says that God can't or won't be faithful to fulfill his promises. That's what their laugh says. A son to them is beyond reason. It's beyond impossible, which says it's beyond God. Every year there's a Peanuts cartoon and Charlie Brown used to run and try to kick the football. Every year Lucy would hold the football right up in front of Charlie Brown. Some people may remember this. And every year, right before Charlie kicks the football, she pulls the football away, he kicks the air, and he falls on his backside. Every single year, Charlie Brown swears he's never going to fall for this again. And every single year, he runs to kick the football. And at the last second, Lucy pulls the football, and he ends up lying on his back again. And the last time he did it in the last frame, she pulls the ball away right before he can kick it again, and she looks down at him as he's lying on the ground. And she says, your faith in human nature is an inspiration to all young people. <laughs> now, when Sarah laughs, she is the polar opposite of Charlie Brown. She's laughing the laugh of a cynic. Sarah would never make the same mistake that Charlie Brown made. She's not that stupid. She knows that if she believes this promise of God, she's going to look like a fool. It reminds me of Noah. You ever think what Noah's neighbors must have thought about this guy building an ark in a like, residential neighborhood? Like, Think about this. People would think she's crazy for believing this. She has become, to me, this is the saddest part. She's become immune to surprise. And this is why God's response to Sarah is so powerful when he says to her, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? 
God is actually inviting her to welcome surprise back into her life. And so the story kind of ends. The tension really isn't resolved yet. And Sarah, out of fear, actually lies to God, compounding it. Oh, man, if you're going to laugh at God, then don't go lie about it, too. You know? That's what we have confession for. She insists that she didn't laugh. God says, oh, yeah, you did. I heard you. And Abraham and Sarah move on. They're seemingly unchanged, not convinced, still hopeless, still childless. The gospel in this story is really interesting. It's actually designed to kind of burst our parameters of reason and common sense. It reaches beyond our frames of reference. Abraham and Sarah laugh in the face of God's promises, but God is still God. God's promises actually didn't depend on their response. The promise had already been made, and soon enough, a son would be born. Whether they were ready or not, when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. And so, as I thought about this, here's here's what kind of got me thinking. I think there's a question that we might ask of ourselves. What promise or promises of God, what am I struggling with today? What promise or promise am I having a hard time believing and a hard time taking a hold of? And then we think about that question and hold that question in tension with the same question that God asked of Abraham and Sarah. Is anything too wonderful for God? Is anything beyond God's capacity? How would you answer And so the promise of the gospel here is unreasonable. Grace is not logical. Faith is hard. And so it stands beyond reason because faith stands not on how smart we are, not on how well we can work out the problems in our head. But the important thing it stands on is God's faithfulness to keep God's promises. That's what faith stands on. And so that's the good news, that keeping promises is God's nature. Despite our laughter and despite our decisions, God is faithful. And so many people today will actually mock people of faith. They'll call Christians ignorant of the way things really work in the world. If it can't be measured and repeated in a science lab, some people will laugh. But we know some things that people without faith don't know about how things really do work in the world. Because God is faithful to keep God's promises. And so can we picture a world that God created, Dale talked about last week, a world that God made, a world that God loves? Can we picture a world that God actually entered into in order to redeem it in Jesus? Can we picture a world where Jesus would voluntarily take our place on the cross? so that we could experience real forgiveness, that we could experience peace and salvation that stretches from now to eternity. If we only use logic, if we only use reason, then the good news of the gospel could be laughable. But that doesn't make it untrue. And that's why faith is this priceless gift The day that Isaac was born, they weren't laughing as hopeless cynics anymore. They were laughing tears of joy. Because it turns out that nothing 
is too wonderful for the God of the universe. There's no better medicine than laughter because life is good, it's precious, it's a joyous gift, and it's full of surprises. It was God who actually ended up having the last laugh. As God told Abraham to name his son Isaac, which means, anybody? He who laughs. And so there's an old Yiddish proverb that just says simply this, the human schemes, but God laughs. The human schemes, but God laughs. Will you pray? God, we marvel at your incredible faithfulness in Scripture. We also marvel at your incredible faithfulness with each one of us. God, we know that we don't always live out of faith. And yet, you remain faithful to your promises anyway. Help us, God, to hold on to the promise of the good news and to live in your ways in front of the rest of the world. 